Some of you know, I guess probably all of you know, that I kind of like baseball. I don't get to watch it very much. It just isn't time to do that. But sometimes when I do, I have competing voices. Because on my phone, I have a little app that sends me updates on scores. I know, I shouldn't do that, but I do because I don't get to watch much. So that lets me keep up on scores of certain teams, and the Cardinals are one of those. So when I get a little chance to watch baseball on TV, I forget that I have the phone sitting there beside me. And I'm watching, and there'll be things happening on the screen, and yet there's no runs being scored or anything, and all of a sudden my phone goes... Because my feed on my TV is way behind the feed on my phone. And so if we're up to bat, it's a good thing. Because that means we scored. If the enemy, I mean the other team, is up to bat, and it goes, it's a bad thing. Because that means they scored, which should never happen. Ever. Ever. And so there's a disconnect. My feed on TV What I see lags behind what the phone is telling me. Which do I listen to? You see, it's tempting to watch the TV and wonder, oh, I wonder if we're going to score when I've already got the... But isn't that a picture of our life? We look around the world and we see all this stuff and we're tempted to go, what on earth is going on here? Who is actually in control? Where is God in all this mess? but we have the scriptures that are constantly going, reminding us of everything we just sang this morning. And that is the way we have to live our lives, knowing there is a disconnect in our feed, knowing our feed lags behind, and, and our feed seems to be the reality that we're living in. But if we're believers under the lordship of Christ, we know that's not reality, right? Reality is what God says is real. And so even though our feed, what we look at every day, may cause us fear and loathing, we know that the Word of God has already told us what we need to know about the outcome of that. And so in the same way that my feed lags behind my phone, our vision lags behind our thoughts and our heart that we know what the Scripture says. Now that's what Isaiah is trying to tell his people. That's what Isaiah is trying to tell us over and over and over and over again. And while I understand the temptation that some pastors have, well, I won't say they've given into a temptation. Some pastors have found it um, good for them to cover large portions of Isaiah in one sermon because there is so much repetition. And yet God, in his mercy to us, through the power of the Spirit, deemed there be 11 chapters of judgment against the nations. So we're progressing through 11 chapters. And that's just one little portion of the book. There's 700, I mean, no, 66 chapters. It's going to feel like 6,600 chapters, but there are a lot of chapters in Isaiah, and the same themes can be repeated for us because we are living in a reality that we constantly need. And Isaiah gives it to us. Last week, we started with the first of these oracles, the oracle concerning Babylon. And this, this oracle goes over two chapters in our Bible, not quite two full chapters. We'll move to the second oracle next week at the end of chapter 14. But last week, we started with the, with the beginning of this oracle in chapter 13. 
Then when chapter 14 rolls around, there's another one of our reminders, another reminder of what God intends to do with his people, with the remnant, another one of those glorious reminders. So we constantly have this this circle of hope and judgment going through um, Isaiah, and we need that. So we're going to start in chapter 14 today with one of those moments and then return to reality. And remember that last week, one of the things that we that I said, that I hope we agreed on, was that Babylon through the scriptures is often used as a type of sinful humanity. People and nations who are enemies of God rising up against them. We, see, we looked at several verses of scripture that the, the term Babylon is used like that. And so that is continuing today. Today, when we move from Babylon as a nation and the promise that the Medes would overtake them and and in history that actually happened, now we're going to move into Babylon the king. But I want you to keep in mind that the king here is not merely the king of Babylon. The king is all kings of Babylon. Not only the physical nation of Babylon, but all Babylons. Just like last week we saw that God moved in the way he promises to move against Babylon, he will move against all Babylons. In the way that God promises to move against the king of Babylon, he will move against all those who usurp his authority and try to seat themselves in his seat. And so those truths hang these these chapters together. So I'm not going to read the entire passage. We'll read it as we go rather than read. We're going to go all the way through verse 27 today. And rather than read that all and then come back, I'll just read it in sections this morning so that we don't take the time to read everything back to back, but we'll read it as the sections that we, as we deal with them. So in these two chapters, chapters 13 and 14, we, are, we, we started this last week. We are shown eight scenes in the oracle Isaiah saw against Babylon. Eight scenes in the oracle Isaiah saw against Babylon. And last week we looked at the first three of those scenes. Babylon will be judged, and we saw that in chapter 13, 1 through 8. All Babylons will be judged. So the expansion is not just that particular nation, but all of those Babylons, all of those enemies of God will be judged. We saw that chapter 13, verse 9 through 16. And Babylon will fall to the Medes, 13, 17 through 22. That's what we saw last week. And the other thing we need to remind ourselves is Isaiah is writing when Assyria is the dominant power, right? Assyria is the one that's the dominant power. Babylon's not a nobody. Babylon has some power. They're, they're, they're moving and shaking in their own way, but it's Assyria that's the threat. So when Isaiah jumps to Babylon, he's jumping ahead. Remember, Assyria is the country God used to come against the northern kingdom and take them into captivity right around this time that we start the, uh, the book of Isaiah. And they were taken into captivity when? The northern kingdom? 722, it's catching, it's catching. I'm, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling the love here, these important dates. So this is about the time Isaiah's writing. In fact, we're going to see in the next oracle, next week against Philistia, that it's, the, it's the, marked as the year that Ahaz dies. So Ahaz dies probably in 715. So the northern kingdom is being approached by Assyria. They're going to be taken off. But yet Isaiah is speaking to the southern kingdom And when he speaks about Babylon, the first fulfillment of that is when Babylon comes to take the southern kingdom into captivity in 586. 
and we want to get technical, there were actually three different times they were drug into captivity, right? They were 604 and 597 and 586. But 586 is when the temple falls. Time, 586 is when Jerusalem collapses, and that's the time the scriptures show it in 2 Kings, that this is the end of the northern kingdom. So even as Isaiah is speaking, he's speaking to the southern kingdom about who will eventually overtake them, and he's speaking to them about these oracles of the nation so that the southern kingdom will do what? Repent of their wickedness so that this doesn't happen. And yet the northern kingdom is involved in this as well. And sometimes we'll see Israel and Judah and those terms uh, used generically of all of God's people. So our task this morning is to hear the rest of the oracle and set it in its historical um, setting, but also to understand what it means for us today. And you go, well, Rob, that's what we have to do with every scripture passage. And that, yes, every single Sunday, this is what we do, right? We come to the text. We say, what does it mean? What did the author mean to the original audience? What did the author expect? the original audience to do in response to the message, and then how does that response affect us today? And so we'll see many ways that this affects us today. So we're going to move on with the fourth scene of the eight scenes in the oracle Isaiah saw against Babylon, starting in verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1. And in these three verses, we see Yahweh will comfort his remnant with rest. For, can we just stop there? You think I'll do that every word? It scares you, doesn't it, when I stop at the first word? For, some of your versions may say when. Either one of those is, is acceptable, but I think for is what we need to hear because it is t- showing us how 13 and 14 are tied together and where the hope is in the middle. Remember, we have seen over and over in the book of Isaiah that as God is judging wicked people, he is saving his remnant. Remember, they go hand in hand in the book of Isaiah. And that's what we see here. God is judging, as we see at the beginning in chapter 13, the beginning of this oracle, using the Medes to come against the Babylonians, which in history does happen, and then expanding that to the way God deals with all of his enemies. And the four connects us and reminds us of the idea that while he is advancing righteousness, he's also saving his remnant. Four... Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And, when, and the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in Yahweh's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were who were their captors, and rule over those who oppressed them. When Yahweh has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, and then he goes on to say what? We'll deal with that in a minute. But this opening section is that reminder that God is working a remnant. Now, we're going to come to this section twice this morning. We'll start here and just put it in the context of where we would be if we were Judah listening to Isaiah. He has just told us that the Babylonians are going to be overcome and that the Babylonians are who God would use against his disobedient people. But he also reminds us here in verse 1 that Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob and will choose Israel and will again choose Israel, it says. Now, don't get confused here. This isn't that God chooses and then unchooses and chooses again and unchooses. But from Israel's perspective, when they're under judgment, God brings the language of them being under judgment the same as he does for the nations. 
So they feel as if they are being chastised. They are being chastised by God. And what God constantly reminds them of is that you are my people. And the promises that we made in the covenant were that I would be your God and you would be my people and that you would be blessed when you obey me and cursed when you disobey me. And so the choosing again is another way of saying because God chose you, that choice is always. It will never go away. Now, we know from the whoop and wharf of Scripture, and we'll see some of these passages later, that there are those among physical Israel who are not spiritual Israel. We have to remind ourselves of this, or we get, we get all turned around in the Old Testament if we don't see all of the Old Testament clearly. This is taught in the Old Testament and the New Testament that not all Israel is true Israel. Israel with the circumcised hearts are the elect Israel. Israel that was disobedient are the non-elect Israel. So this remnant that's promised is of the elect Israelites that God promises to redeem and to bring out of these dangers so the lord will have compassion on jacob and will again choose israel in other words he'll move from coming against them to being uh, to protecting them as the remnant that shift and they will feel it that way and will set them in their own land and sojourners or maybe better aliens will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Now we've seen this idea already, right? Back in chapter 2, we've already seen this ideal um, mountain of the Lord. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. So we're returning to that time again, that time again where the nations come to the mountain. They come to learn from Yahweh. They, they become disciples of Yahweh. And the, the, the southern kingdom hears this, and they have been under, they've been under persecution. They've been under persecution. Remember, the Assyrians have already come at Isaiah's time, already come and knocked on the door of Jerusalem. They took, they took many prisoners from the southern kingdom, and they've knocked on the door of Jerusalem. They, don't, they aren't able to overtake it, but they are feeling the fear of the Assyrians. And Isaiah reminds them the Babylonians are going to come and do what the Assyrians couldn't pull off. And so these are the people who start, they start their journey in, in prison as slaves in Egypt. And this kind of language permeates this section for us. But these aliens, those who are non-Jews, those, those who are in, that are non-Jews but are coming among you, will join you and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Verse 2, and the people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in Yahweh's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. So this isn't saying that Israel is acting out of vengeance. Just say, this is the way of saying the tables have turned. 
Just like they were slaves in Egypt and set free from that, and then they were going to, they're going to be slaves to the Babylonians when they're taken into captivity, just like that has happened, the tables will be turned where Israel will not be the oppressed ones anymore. Israel will be the ones that are bringing people in to Yahweh's land. They will be attached to God's people. And so this is the encouragement that's saying, even though this is going to happen, God is preserving a remnant. And guess what? It's not only the remnant. It is that he will reverse your fortunes completely. It would be great encouragement. And as I said, we'll come back. There's much more to say about these verses, but we'll come back here in a moment. So the fifth, we've seen the fourth scene now. Yahweh will comfort his remnant with rest. Now the fifth scene, Yahweh's remnant will taunt Babylon's king. First of all, Yahweh has stopped your oppression. Verse 14, or chapter 14, after, well, let me deal with verse 3. I, I haven't dealt with that yet enough. When Yahweh has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service, that's again where we're thinking of slavery in Egypt. It's exactly the same word that's used to describe what they were doing in Egypt when they were slave labor in Exodus 1 verse 14 which you were made to serve. So it was an oppression from the outside, and he will give you rest from that. And this is a constant promise for God's people to have rest. It's a constant promise for us, which we'll see in a moment how that is fulfilled. So when that rest is given, when you've had rest given from the turmoil that the Babylonians will make you um, strive under, verse 4 says you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Now, this word taunt can be translated as proverb or parable, but I think taunt is right. Uh, some of your versions will say uh, proverb or parable in, instead of this, but I think taunt is the right thing. It's the same way that the word is used in verses like Micah chapter 2, verse 4, where it's a taunt song is the translation of the same word, or Habakkuk 2, 6, a taunt against him with scoffing and riddles. So you see the context, the, the taunt is full of scoffing. So it is a parable and in the sense that it is, it is telling what God intends to do, but it is put in the mouth of the people, of the remnant. It is giving them the joy of taunting their former enemy. It's giving them the joy of taunting from the, from the standpoint of creation and from Sheol and God's judgment of the character of the king of Babylon and all arrogant people that they are being able to taunt them because they have tried to set themselves up in the place of God. So let's look at this taunt. The first thing we see is Yahweh has stopped your oppression. Look at verse 4. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. Yahweh has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers. Now look at how verse 6 fills in what the staff and the scepter are. The staff of the wicked, verse 6, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, and the scepter of rulers, second half of verse 6 now, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. So this is describing... Babylon, of course, led by the king. As the king goes, so goes the nation. This is describing, describing Babylon and their cruel ways that they dealt with all the nations, including Israel, including what Israel um, had, uh, what, what the southern kingdom will have to um, endure at their hands when they are taken into captivity. 
I want you to notice just markers in the text here in verse 4. You see the word how that starts it? Then look over to verse 12, and verse 12 starts with how as well. That marks us off on the kind of the two verses of the taunt that, that we see. Both of those um, little words mark us off at kind of the halfway point of what's being taught. So look at the most important part here. The Lord has broken the staff and the scepter. The Lord has done this. Yahweh is the one who has acted in his covenant faithfulness as, faithfulness as he redeems the remnant. He is also coming against his enemies, even though he whistles and the enemies come to do his bidding. But they do his bidding out of their arrogance instead of out of obedience to God. So the first thing that we learn in their taunt is that Yahweh has stopped your oppression. Everything that you have done, the most powerful king, the most powerful nation in the world, God has intervened and he stopped it. It has ceased. And you almost get the feeling of just everything just roaring and roaring and all of a sudden just, just like that, just stopped because Yahweh spoke, because Yahweh deemed it to be true. So this language, again, of being in slavery and receiving unceasing blows from a wicked oppressor is encouragement to God's people as they hear that Yahweh's remnant um, will taunt, will be able to taunt their oppressors in this way. The second way they'll taunt, the earth is now at peace. Because God has ceased, look at verses 7 and 8. Because God has ceased your oppression, your fury, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at, at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Now we shift to even how the creation responds to the work of an evil oppressor. And this is the reversal of 2 Kings 19.23 where Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, he, in his boast, he boasts that he was able with his army just to waltz right into Lebanon and cut down their cedars and cut down their cypresses. Lebanon was a rich field of these, of these trees which had the, the cedars of Lebanon were sought after throughout all of the world because of the quality, the straightness of their, of their boards and the quality of the wood. And Sennacherib boasted he just waltzed right in and took them down. Well, this is, the, this is the creation saying, since God has stopped you, we're safe. And what does the creation do? The whole earth is at rest and quiet. There's that word rest again. You see, the, when God acts, you see what he produces? He produces rest for those who are for him. This brings into mind Romans chapter 8, doesn't it? Where all creation groans for the redemption of the sons of men because creation was placed under the curse, not willingly, but from him who placed them under the curse. And they're groaning because they know in the sons of men, when God finishes the redemption of the people that he has elected, there will be the new heavens and new earth and there will be, they will receive the benefit. The creation will as well. The cypress rejoice and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. So they're in rest and they're quiet. And yet in their quietness, what do they do? They sing. They sing. It's the natural response of believers who receive the grace of God, is it not? is to sing. He's, all the instruments in the world that have ever been created, God is the one who created us as the primary instrument. That's why in our theology of worship, everything that we do undergirds you and us singing together as the body of Christ. Because if the trees are pictured as singing when they're given rest, 
surely we should be those who are singing as well in response to what God has done. But it's not only in nature and the earth now being at peace. We also drop into Sheol, beginning in verse 9, where former earthly leaders testify against you. This is Remember, this is the taunt that the people of God will be able to give to the king of Babylon, and the people of God throughout history will be able to give to all kings that are wicked. Look at verse 9. Sheol beneath is stirred up. Now, we don't have time to go into a full theology of the afterlife, but it's, you know that throughout scriptures, it's progressively revealed what we know. There's not this full-orbed picture of hell like in the Old Testament, like we have in the New Testament. It doesn't mean that God is, is not existing and doing what he's doing, but it means that the way scriptures reveal it is different. So Sheol is the abode of the dead. Everyone goes there. Now, the Bible is very clear that, there are, that, that the Lord is able to redeem the righteous from Sheol. Even in the Old Testament, we see that. Um, such as Psalm 49, 15. God will ransom my soul from Sheol, for he will not abandon me. So the God who acts as he will, who's sovereign, can redeem everyone, and he does redeem from Sheol for the righteous. But it is the resting place of the dead, and there is wailing there as well by those who are the unrighteous. Now here we have pictured all the kings of the earth, probably that the king of Babylon overthrew. We're seeing them in Sheol. And listen to what is said here in verse 9. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. So in other words, you may think that you're something, but you're going to end up here just like the rest of us. It rouses the shades or, or the, the, it's the Raphaim, the, the spirit or the ghost, sometimes it's translated, to greet you. So it, rise, it rouses up the spirits of these former rulers, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. So the, the nation who is oppressing all the other nations. Now their kings who are already there are rising up to greet the new addition. And listen to what they say. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as we are, as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sounds of your harps, maggots are laid as the bed beneath you and worms are your covers. In other words, you're just a mortal man. And you end up in the same way as us. Your body rots in the grave. You, all the harps that you had that would sing your praises, all the harps that the musicians would use to welcome you into court, where are they now? You are just like us. You are weak. Because Yahweh has acted is the overarching theme that's being brought. So don't press the details of the picture here. This is just saying no matter how arrogant and oppressive the king is, this is your end result. And all the other kings who are arrogant and oppressive greet you and say, ha, you're just as weak as we are. And why are they weak? Because they're in opposition to the sovereign one who does what he pleases. So Yahweh's remnant will taunt Babylon's king. The sixth scene in the oracle is Yahweh will judge Babylon's king. Now, the taunt continues here. 
So I, I don't mean by my outline, I realize the end of the week that the outline probably looks like the taunt doesn't continue. But the taunt continues. If you see the quotation marks probably in your Bible, you'll have that, that beginning with the word how and ending at the, with the word cities in verse 21. So the taunt continues, but I want, you, I want you to see the focus of the taunt now. And the focus of the taunt is that Yahweh will judge Babylon's king. And the first thing, Babylon's king is arrogant. Now, this is the center of everything. This is where everything points to for us. It's where it points to for the king. It's where it points to for us in verses 12 through 14. Babylon's king is arrogant. Now, I want you to, as I just read these, without even breaking the comment, I want you to see all the ways that our eyes are lifted up, words that are pointing us upward. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Do you hear the two things that just jump out? I, 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 I will rise, 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 rise. I will elevate myself. Now, these verses sometimes are, you, are, are attributed to be the fall, describing the fall of Satan. I don't think that's what's going on here. Could we say Satan did the same thing? Well, in one sense we can, but this is talking about the king of Babylon, it's talking about all wicked kings, and it's talking about all the unrepentant and arrogant people. Because at its base, arrogance is seating ourselves in the place of God. At its foundation, it is saying, I don't care what God says, what help he's offering, I can do this on my own. I can attain this on my own. The, the, the idea of it being uh, the fall of Satan, the fall of Lucifer, comes from translating into Latin the, the phrase, the, uh, the day star, the, translating that from Latin, it started all the way back in the early church fathers who looked at this because that's translated in Latin Lucifer. And so it was immediately attached to their, the Jerome's uh, Latin Vulgate translated it that way as well. But I don't want you to be thinking about that. I want you to think about the king as representative of all evil kings, as representative of all enemies of God. That's what we're seeing here. You've fallen from heaven. O day star, son of dawn. In other words, you tried to seat yourself there, and in your very trying, you've fallen. And we'll see how far he's fallen in the next section. You were cut down to the ground, you, had laid the na- you who had laid the nations low. You used to cut others to the ground, but now because of your arrogance, God has cut you to the ground. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly and in the far reaches of the north. Now, what this is using here is a picture of a mountain in northern Syria that according to Canaanite theology, Canaanite mythology, that, that the, this is where Baal lived and this is where all the Canaanite gods would live. And so this king, in his arrogance, because he could topple all the nations and do as he pleased with, it, with his warriors and his soldiers, and he could take those nations, he just thought he could ascend to the top of that mountain as well and sit there with the gods, if not above the gods. That's the picture that's being given. But it's not limited to the, to the fables of the Canaanites. It takes us all the way through to Yahweh when in verse 14, the, the words, the taunt that is said, you, O king, is who is being talked about, will make myself like the most high. 
So that would be the most high of the pantheons of the gods. And according to the scripture, that is Yahweh himself. He is the most high God. And so this king has done everything in his power to raise himself up. And he's so arrogant and full of himself that he thought he was even greater than the gods. Which means he thought he was even greater than the God, the one true God. Now, we, we're not Babylon. We're surely not a king of Babylon. But don't we have to fight our own arrogance and pride? As believers, even. As believers who have been redeemed. There are times that we live as if we are God. Now, we may not use phrases like, I'm going to ascend to your right hand, God, and sit there and tell you how to do things. Although sometimes it kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? We, in our life, any time that we act as if God is not present, does not exist, all the benefits and blessings that we have in Christ, we're seated with him in the heavenly places. He gives us all wisdom. He gives us power to live this life, the power of the cross, the, the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is directed toward his church. And yet we live as if, I got this. I think I can handle this. And we live as our, our growth group has been studying Jerry Bridges. And, and he talks about godly, godlessness, not just being um, the way we live in sinful ways, but acting as if God is not there. That we live a life that God is out of. Therefore, our life is godless. We don't give him any credence as if he exists. So we need to be aware of this as well. We need to be aware of this when we make decisions without consulting God, when we exercise wisdom of the earth instead of wisdom from above, when, when we're making these decisions of what we want to do, especially when we know that God doesn't want us to do that. And then we abuse grace sometimes by, even if we don't say it out loud in the deep recesses, we're saying, well, he has to forgive me, doesn't he? We set ourselves up in the same position. A.W. Tozer once put it this way, sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. That is sin in its concentrated essence. Yet because it is natural, it appears to be good. In other words, it's what our flesh wants to do. What shall we do? Quoting Acts 2.37, when the people heard Peter preach the gospel, they said, what shall we do? And he says, repent. The response should be repentance. What shall we do, says Tozer, is the deep heart cry of every man who suddenly realizes that he is a usurper and sits on a stolen throne. Now, thankfully for us, there's grace. Amen? We have been bought with a price. But the call to humility drenches Scripture, and I wonder if it drenches our lives. Just think of all the places where we learn that God exalts the humble but comes against and brings down the prideful. The, the, the idea is like in Philippians chapter 2 where we're told to have this mind in us as Christ had in himself, and then we go on to learn about his humility in his incarnation. It's a constant thing that God says, you are to walk humbly before me. And if we're walking humbly before God, we are not being arrogant. So this hits right at the heart of our daily lives. And I hope that for you, all the areas that you're tempted to do that, the Spirit is both convicting you and reminding you of the promises of God. 
that your sin is forgiven, that wisdom is available to you, that the knowledge of the Holy Spirit that brings to you to bring his word up to reminder to you is available to you as you are living so that you don't have to act as if you're God in the way that you live. Well, Babylon's king is arrogant. It's the center of our text here. It's what everything hinges upon. Secondly, Babylon's king will die. Look at verse 15. Now, just as I drew your attention to all the ways our eyes are lifted up in 12 through 14, I want you to also see how all the ways that our eyes are directed down in this section. But, now that's a great word, right? This is a bad thing for you to be doing, king, but there's consequences to it. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out from away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and have slain your people. There is a consequence to this for the king of Babylon, representing his people for all kings against God, you will be brought to Sheol. You will meet your end. You will, and this, the wickedness, the high height that you tried to ascend to matches the low um, ending point for you, the far reaches of the pit of Sheol. And everyone will look at you and say, you're the one that has so much earthly power? How weak are you now? What is your position now? Or even all the people that were oppressed by him saying, you did all of that and now look at the way you are. Verse 18 begins to tell this story of a, of a field on the battle. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in their own tomb, literally each in their own house. So the kings get buried, and it's an, it's an honorable barrier, burial with all of the pomp and circumstance. But you, you get nothing. What do you get? You're cast out from your grave like a, like a loathed branch, like the branch that's sent off to be burned, clothed with the slain. Your body lays on the battlefield underneath all of the other dead people. But those people, those people are going to get buried, but not you. You're going to have the ultimate disrespect of not even gaining a burial. So in the ancient world, this was, this was a huge insult to not have a burial. This was a gigantic insult. It showed the demoralization that God would put the king in. And the people of God are able to say to the world that this is what happens to wicked people because they are against the Lord. They are against God. But it gets even worse. Not only will he die, but Babylon's king will have no remnant. Look at verse the second half of verse 20. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Now, this isn't saying that the children are going to be guilty of the father's sins. This is saying the children will continue the father's sins. 
unless they take over the world. Evil take over the world. Even your posterity will be taken away from you. Just as there's a promise of a remnant for God's people, there is a promise there will be no remnant of the evil. There will be none. Because in the new heavens and new earth, there is no evil, is there? So this is the promise. We have expanded, and we continue expanding this view from the king of Babylon to all the kings of Babylon to all the evil and the way that God deals with pride and arrogance. Because if they build cities and possess the earth, who is it that possesses the earth according to the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, not the arrogant but also the promise that it is Yahweh of hosts who will do this. Verse 22, I, now this is the people that are moving away from their taunt, and now God is speaking. I will rise up against them, declares Yahweh of hosts, and will listen to the finality of this, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. Babylon falls, But the Lord arises, and that's what causes the fall of Babylon. And I will make a possession of the head, I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares Yahweh of hosts. So we already saw this described in chapter 13, verses 20 through 22, with words like this It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will, will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. These ostriches will dwell. There, there in that land, ostriches will dwell. And there, wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant places. In time, is clo- its time it closes, is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. The Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts that we learned about in chapter 9 with the promise of a son being born and the government resting upon his shoulders and the eternality of that reign. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. This is another example of the zeal of the Lord of hosts carrying out what he intends. Well, the seventh and eighth scenes of this oracle are against Assyria and the whole earth. As goes Babylon, so goes Assyria in verses 24 and 25. As goes Babylon, so goes the whole earth. This is Isaiah's attempt to move the gaze. Now, some of your, some of your versions will say, in, not in the text, but in the editorial headings, an oracle concerning Assyria. It, it, it sort of is, but it's not an oracle in the sense of chapters 13 through 23, because the word oracle does not appear here as it does the other 10 times. So the oracle, this word against Assyria, is part of the oracle against Babylon, and there's a really good reason why. The people that Isaiah is speaking to, these people are hearing about Babylon, I mean, Babylon is not even the power. If they woke up this morning before Isaiah started speaking, if another nation was the topic around the breakfast table, it was Assyria. So this is the way of God reminding them, what I'm always going to do is what I do for you as well. So this is going to happen to you in the future, but it also is going to happen to Assyria, the one who's pestering you now, the one who will take the northern kingdom away. Look at verse 24. Yahweh of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. 
And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That, when what is he planned and purposed? That I will break the Assyrian in my land. That's what the promise was at the beginning in chapter, the first couple of verses of this chapter. And on my mountain trample, trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. So the yoke and the burden of the Assyrians will depart from God's people because this is what God intends to do. So listen, listen. It's not only about the future. It's not, I'm not just talking about all the ways God is going to act. This is the way God will act against your oppressors of today, the Assyrians. This is what God will do to them. He, will, he purposed it, he planned it, and therefore he will carry it out. Now, th that word means nothing if we're talking about just another earthly king, does it? Because they can purpose and plan all they want until they can't purpose and plan anymore because somebody comes in their bedchamber and knifes them because somebody else wants power. This is the nature of earthly kings, but it is not the nature of the sovereign one who exists forever. It is not the nature of Yahweh. What he purposes, he will carry out. What he intends to do, what he plans, he will actually carry out. And that's why these wonderful passages of Scripture constantly remind us that in our reality that we're living in, we have the reminder of what God has promised that he will do. Timing is up to him. It's not up to us. Vengeance is of the Lord, not from us. Well, look how he says he expands it to the entire world in verse 26. Again, these strong phrases, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For Yahweh of hosts has purposed and who will annul it his hand is stretched out and who will turn it back babylon assyria the entire world this is what god's god does to enemies who refuse to bow the knee and you say wow we're just assuming a lot of things here i mean do the do the southern kingdom really know about the messiah do they really know that jesus came and and what he accomplished well the old the saints in the Old Testament are saved the same way the saints in the New Testament are saved, right? They have faith in the Messiah and all that the Messiah has promised. And when we, if you turn back to the beginning in chapter 14, this promise is for us. It's not just localized for the southern kingdom. This is the promise of rest for us because we are God's people. We inherit the promises given to Abraham, according to Galatians. It is it, The remnant is saved and spared so that the Messiah comes out of that remnant. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, the, the one who has the authority to sit on the, day, the throne of David for perpetuity and for, forever. It, he's the one who comes and offers the one true perfect sacrifice that it's never needed to be offered again. He is the one who comes as the promised seed, singular, of Abraham, and all who are in Christ receive the promises made to Abraham. So all this old covenant language that's used is all fulfilled in Christ for us. We are the ones that have that fulfillment. Listen to the way E.J. Young puts this. Israel is to bring enemies into the Lord's land and cause them to inherit it. This promise was not fulfilled in the return of the Jews from Babylonian bondage, but it is being fulfilled when the Gentiles who oppose God are conquered through the house of Israel, the Israel of God, the church, and are subdued by the Holy Spirit and made heirs of the promise. The deliverance from Babylon is made the basis of this promise, for the deliverance from Babylon was but typical of Christ's greater salvation. So how do we taunt God's enemies now? We preach. 
That's the taunt. We don't sit back and say, oh, you guys are wicked and you're going to burn in hell. We sit back and say, if you don't repent, your wickedness will cause you to be separated from God forever and burn in hell. That is our taunt. Our taunt is the gospel. You are an enemy of the one true God. You have, have pushed away Jesus Christ as if his sacrifice means nothing. And if it means nothing for you, then you stand on judgment day by yourself in your own righteousness. That is the strongest taunt that we can give. It's not us sitting in our high tower and making fun of people. That's that Old Testament language that would have been done. We're going to see that taunt given the other way with Sennacherib's representative, with Rabshakeh, and, and how he um, interacts with the leaders of Judah's army later on, chapter 36 and 37. We'll see that, how that works. But for us, the taunt is the gospel. It is calling people where they are, telling people where they are that they are sinners in need of the Messiah. They are sinners in need of forgiveness. And if their sin is not dealt with by the Messiah, by Jesus Christ in his person and work, then they will stand accountable for their own sin and it will be much worse than the description of these Babylonian kings in chapter 14. That is the way we taunt our enemies. Now, we are seeing men and women be taken captive and become sons of the living God. So all this language, chapter 14, the first three verses, let's read them again with this in our mind. For Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them into their place. And the house of Israel will, pos will possess them in, the, in Yahweh's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. When Yahweh has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service which you were made to serve. We are the ones who go out with the gospel. That is our tool. That is our weapon as we enter into the world and we see people become captive to God. Remember, our theology tells us that we're either slaves to Satan or slaves to God, right? There's no middle ground. So we see people through the power of the gospel become slaves of the one true God, just like you and I are. We see them now coming into the kingdom, coming, and they will all with us, Jew and Gentile, come into the promised land, which is the new heaven and new earth. It's not a patch of dirt someplace for us. It is the new heaven and new earth where we are constantly forever in the presence of our Lord. That is the promise, and that's how we subdue the nations, and God is doing that. This is what is happening. This is why God, through his providence, has moved all the, way, the promises of the Old Testament for, that it's not just for the Jews, it is for the Gentile as well, come to fruition in the New Testament, where the church is Jesus Christ coming and breaking down the dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile, and he comes in and makes one new man, and it's the church, and that's where the gospel lies. That's where eternal life is given, is through the church, because we preach Jesus Christ, who is the one who is made that possible. Young concludes like this, the enemy will dwell upon the land as slaves and as maidservants. Israel will not serve them, but they will serve her, and through her will serve her God. They had led their captive, but now Israel will act toward them as captor. Once they had oppressed Israel, now she will rule over her former oppressors. Through Christ, the heathen are being spiritually subdued 
That is to say, through Christ, working by means of these ministers and missionaries, they are being subdued. Only in the last great day will everything be fully subject to him. This is the picture that's given in Revelation of the new heavens and new earth, that there would be no need, there would be no need of a temple, right? The gates and the foundations for those gates, the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel sitting as rulers. And all the nations, according to Revelation 22, will bring their wealth in, but who will be kept out? Any wickedness. All wickedness will be kept out. That is the ultimate fulfillment of what this passage is leading us to understand. It brings the, it brings the relief to the people in Judah. It brings relief for us. It reiterates our message and our, what we're called to do, the mission that we're on. All of that can be undermined by our own arrogance, which was the primary issue with the Babylonian kings and the Assyrian kings and for anyone who rejects Christ. Let me just tell you, if you're here this morning and you have not accepted the Jesus that I just told you about, then it's your arrogance getting in the way because you think you know better than what God has said. You think that on the day of judgment you'll have the wit or the scales will balance in your favor or that there will be no day of judgment because there is no God. That's what you think, but it's earthly wisdom. And it's your arrogance keeping you from humbling yourself before the only true way to have your sins forgiven. And that is to humble yourself and repent before Christ. So the arrogance is the central issue here. Now, we, we need to fight this in our own life. But if you are outside of Christ today, this is the day of your salvation if you humble yourself before Christ and have his mind in you. And you need to talk to someone about that. If this is today your first day doing that, I don't care if you're seven years old or 70 years old. When we're finished, I want you to tap the person next to you and say, I think that I need to get saved today and let them show you how to do that. Let them introduce you to the Savior in an intimate way of what I have already said. MacArthur once said this, some people get so caught up in their own holiness that they look at the Trinity for a possible vacancy. Now, if we're nudging somebody else there, you need to take your belt and strap your elbow to your side because this is the way we act at times. But thanks be to God that his wisdom and his love and his righteousness are just flowing from his scriptures, everything that's a promise for us. I, I, we could go to so many passages of scripture right now. We could go to Romans 8 and remind us that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ and that the wisdom and, and, and how unsearchable are his ways, that he has done all of this, and it just brings us to our knees in worship. But I want you to just turn to Psalm 4, and we'll close here. Psalm 4, how do we do this? How do we live in the world that reality is telling us one thing and we're constantly needing the of the scriptures? What does that look like for us? Because there are days that you and I, both of us, we, we turn off the TV or close our web browser or stop talking to our neighbor across the fence and we go home and we just want to turn off the light and sit in a corner and just sit there. Because what's it, what's it all mean? How, how do we do this? And the word keeps going. Bzz, bzz, and we just go, oh, I know that. But here's what I see. And the Holy Spirit's going. Bzz, 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 because.
because what we know has got to be connected to our hearts. What we know in our head has to be connected to our hearts. And Psalm 4 gives us the picture of what it means to be in a position where we're calling on the Lord in our weakness. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have, been given, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Do you hear how strong that is? Answer me, God. Now, that doesn't have to be an arrogant call. That is a call on the promises of God who promises to hear the prayers of these people. Answer me. Verse 2. Oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? It sounds like the world we live in. It's what we see every day. We need a But know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin, quoted in Ephesians 4, right? Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Ponder. Listen to the Forget about what the world looks like. Yes, it's full of lies. Yes, it's full of manipulations and evil, and it's an advancing. But you need to just, in the midst of that, say, that's not reality. Lift your gaze to the sovereign one. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in, the, in Yahweh. So, so do the things that he's commanded you to do. Pray, read your scriptures, fellowship with other believers. Take the encouragement of the promises of God in the midst of community. Verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. See what that's saying? All the earthly blessings that can come, they may bring joy, but ultimate joy comes from the relationship with God because he hears and answers our prayers. He is the one who lifts us out of this mess. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. Do you see that? Not only do we go to bed, which is a good thing sometimes, right? Our worry can keep us out of bed. But we just go to bed and it's not a sleepless night for us. We're resting in him because he is the one in whom, our, in whom our security is tied. He is the one that promises that no matter what's going on in this world and how much we even have to suffer in the midst of the world, the New Testament reminds us not to suffer for doing evil, right? Suffer for doing good. God is pleased. If he's got you in that position, then suffer well. But your security is ultimate. It's with him. He is the one who causes you to be able to sleep at night because no matter what the world says and what it looks like and what our vision tells us, God, speaking through his word about his son, is constantly because we rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that even the lag in our connection, that when we're, work, when we're looking at the world and caught up in what can happen in the world, and sometimes it can even captivate us. Sometimes we're so captivated with the sin of the world, we're forgetting to crucify sin in our own lives. But you have sent your word and your spirit to remind us of those times and of those things because we know that you are for us. There's nothing that separates us from the love of, love of God in Christ. There's, there's nothing in this world that can separate us from that love. That when we have repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in, in Christ, it is not something that goes away the first time we sin. It's not something that goes away the first time our faith is weak. 
It is a constant reminder that you never change and that you are the sovereign one and that our end is sure. Our inheritance is sealed. Our eternal destination is, 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 cannot be lost on our account. So remind us, Father, that as we live in this world and as we walk in this world, that the constant reminder of the lag of our reality that we see with our eyes is overcome by the reality that we see with our spiritual eyes. For you are for your people. So help us, Father, to be strong. Help us, Father, to live according to your precepts with the joy that you have given us because we are safe and secure in your arms. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.